As we have our Bibles open, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at the words of Jesus, we pray that you might take these words of mine, may they be uh, glorious to you, may we come more like Jesus, and may our lives reflect your kingdom. Amen. Well, this whole service this morning is a part of a series that we're in looking at the kingdom of God and what it means for us today. The title for this morning's sermon given by Alan is The King Focuses. In other words, Jesus is getting into much more small-scale stuff. He's focusing on what the kingdom means to us. A quick hands up. How many of you were here last week uh, when Alan was speaking to us? How many? Well, that's approximately about two-thirds, I suppose, so that's pretty good. So last week, if I just remind you, we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15, on how the kingdom of God is now. Alan was saying the kingdom of God is present as well as past and future. And the fact, even though we see terrible things happening today on earth, every time we turn on the news, there's something terrible happening. And Alan challenged us concerning whether we wished for the kingdom. Were we prepared for the struggles for the kingdom? And we continue on this theme as we see Jesus' teaching concerning what God's kingdom looks like and what is required of his followers. Because we need to remember that Jesus never makes it easy for people to be in his kingdom. But who is Jesus actually talking to within this passage? Well, if we look, this passage comes within this section of, the, of Matthew's writing, chapters 4 through to chapter 7. And we read in chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus goes throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom. He is speaking to Jewish religious people. And then we read in chapter 4, verse 25, large crowds come from Galilee, the Decapolis, which were Greek-founded cities, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across Jordan. In other words, a whole crowd of people were coming to hear this man Jesus speaking. There was a complex mix of people. Greeks, Romans, the religious, the well-educated, the poor, the simple. And even those that were associated with Rome and government. And then we read in chapter 5, verse 1, because of the crowds, he goes up on the mountainside and speaks to his followers and others who follow. Now, for many of us this morning, these words were we will have read many times. And it's easy, isn't it, for them to lose their impact on us. So I would like to start this morning by asking you to close your eyes. We've already had one meditation, but close your eyes and imagine you are sitting on that hillside hearing the words of Jesus for the first time. What impact would those words that you have in front of you this morning have on you? Jesus had spoken of the kingdom, 
But what kingdom? What will it look like? Well, this is important to us, isn't it? If we want to think of God's kingdom, and it should encourage us, but it will also challenge us. So just for a moment, what would it be like to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear these words? Well, of course, Jesus' teaching is revolutionary teaching, isn't it? It goes right against the world's value system of the first century AD, that's the times of the Romans, right up to the present time. As followers of Jesus, many of us here are quite conservative in our behaviour, in our beliefs, in our political thought. Well, Jesus challenges us to view his, to his view of the kingdom Now, as we look at this passage this morning of chapter 6, verses 16 to 34, you'll find on page 971. I'm going to divide the sermon into two sections. The first section looks at the verses uh, from 16, uh, sorry, from 19 through to uh, 34, and then uh, 24, and then the section afterwards. So the first section then is, what is Jesus actually teaching us concerning the characteristics of God's kingdom? And then secondly, we'll see what, as a result of this, what challenges us as followers concerning our lifestyles. So firstly then, the characteristic of this kingdom, the focus. What is God's kingdom like? Well, the first thing I think we can say quite clearly is, it's not like human kingdoms as can be seen in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The values of this kingdom are completely opposite those of the world in which we live. When we think of kingdoms, don't we, we think of pomp and ceremony, where the powerful and the wealthy people show by their clothes, their jewellery, their importance. Well, there's no room for this in God's kingdom. We see this with reference to religious people and religious activity. Clearly, Jesus states that within his kingdom, there is no room for outwardly showing off. If you look in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, don't do your good good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose your reward from your Father in heaven. And in our section, in verses 16 to 18, and when you fast... Don't make it obvious. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with doing good and the activity of fasting, as was the tradition with the Jewish faith. Fasting, going without food in order to spend time in prayer, is a noble and difficult activity. Fasting gives us time to pray, teaches us self-discipline, reminds us that we can live with a lot less and helps us appreciate God's gift. Fasting may even help us to store up riches in heaven. No, what Jesus is stating here is, it's the practice of outwardly showing off so that people will see the outward manifestation of going without. That's what's wrong. And the word hypocrite comes within this section. There appears to be no room within God's kingdom for this type of activity. But do fast, but fast in a way that only God the Father, who is unseen, can see. 
God is unseen as his kingdom. Now this, of course, is totally opposite the world's values. The world's values where people want to show off how holy they are by what they do, how wealthy and powerful they are. We see this, don't we, today on TV, in our celebrity culture, everything to gain for displaying our importance and power. Big houses, big cars, smart clothes, being seen in the correct places, all outward show. And there is, of course, danger within the church, wanting to be seen to be holy. But Jesus says, you, my followers, don't be like this for these are my kingdom values. Jesus then develops and expands upon this teaching in verses 19 to 22. We read, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So he opens up their eyes to a different kind of place. A kingdom place where being single-minded concerning God's will is more important than earthly treasures. Now just think about that. What's it do? Well, it throws, doesn't it, into confusion the whole basis of our finance industry and the teaching of mankind concerning wealth and sensible behaviour. Throughout the ages, we have believed, haven't we, in the importance of inheritance and having descendants who are provided for. Whether we're poor or wealthy, whether we're a lord or a king or a peasant, we've held that belief, haven't we, that we should look after our wealth and leave it as an inheritance for our descendants. Well, here, Jesus claims that these are liable to decay. Rust, robbery, and dare I say, inflation. And most importantly, they have no lasting value in God's kingdom. And rather than do this, Jesus says, concentrate upon saving treasure that won't decay, won't rust. Verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And so therefore, this teaching gives us a completely different view of God's kingdom. No importance to be given to earthly wealth. By implication, the poor man is as important as the wealthy and powerful man. Now, what's important is the spiritual, invisible treasure that we have banked with God. Look at verse 20. And this will, of course, include seeing the priority of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these are the treasures that we acquire through faith in Jesus for our salvation and doing God's will in our life's activities now. Well, you may well say to me, Nigel, how do we know God's will for our lives? Well, we know it, don't we, by Jesus' teaching through prayer and times of listening, then putting it into practice. Jesus calls his followers to live contentedly with whatever they have, because we have chosen eternal values over temporary earthly treasures. Now, do please hear me correctly. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to save and provide for our descendants. But don't make it such a priority that it takes over our lives, 
because it isn't of lasting value within God's kingdom. And so we see the challenge, don't we, in verse 24 that Jesus gives us, which master do we serve? Or as Knox, the uh, commentary says, who are we enslaved to, God or money? Or any other interest that's more important to us than God? Now, of course, we know that we have to work to sustain life. That's not the question. But how important are material possessions? How much time and effort do we spend on serving God and others? And how much time do we spend on gaining material wealth? Jesus states, you can't serve in his kingdom two masters, God or any other, where we have to concentrate time and effort on. Our first loyalty should be to those things that don't fade, can't be stolen, or can't be used up or wear out. Consider the Lord's Prayer, which we've already uh, prayed this morning and which Alan referred to last week, where we say, Our Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, Father, you are the most important to me. Your kingdom come. Father, may I do all that I can to help in your kingdom with these values that Jesus has spoken about. So there we have it. We have two characteristics of God's kingdom in this opening section of our reading this morning. There will be no hypocrisy. There will be no hypocrisy in God's kingdom. And God's kingdom will involve putting God first in our lives. So how then should we live as a result of these two things? Well, we see this in verses 25 through to 34. And it's too long for me to read out to you, but you have it there in front of you. Because if this, if this is what God's kingdom's like, Jesus states, you don't have to worry about anything. Look at that little word in verse 25. Therefore, as a result of this teaching I've said to you, therefore, don't worry about everyday life concerns, but put all your efforts into seeking this kingdom of God. Now we know, don't we, that worry and anxiety is a very destructive master. Worry can damage our health, disrupt our productivity, affect the way we treat others, and reduce our ability to trust in God. Jesus had given this revolutionary teaching concerning the values of his kingdom. He goes on to say, as a result of these... In other words, if you are obeying them, if you're living as I have stated, making them a part of your life, you do not have to worry. You do not have to have anxiety about about life. Now, of course, we all know, don't we, that worry and anxiety is a human trait. We all worry to some extent. If you speak to my wife, you'll know that... uh, she will tell you, I worry. Okay, I'm a worrier. Not overly worry, but I do worry sometimes. But we have seen in the last couple of years or so, as our lives have changed, the importance of depending and trusting upon God. Depending on our characters, though, the way we've been brought up, the contacts and situations we have been in, will all influence how much anxiety and how much worry plays a part in our lives. Some people are worriers. 
others are laid back. And of course, a little anxiety is a useful thing. If it wasn't for the motivation of a little anxiety, we would never catch that train or pass that exam or meet that deadline at work. But is there such a thing as too much anxiety? Well, the answer is, there certainly is, isn't there? There are people who are constantly worried about money, their job, their health, and anything else that they can think of. Their anxiety becomes so all-embracing that it takes over their whole lives. But worry, though, in the case of the follower of Jesus, should be conditioned by our priorities and faith. Because in this passage, we see how Jesus identifies the futility of worry. Because he states in verse 27 that we can't alter how long we live by worry. So don't be over-concerned about the need for food and clothes. Look at the nature and the way that God provides for them. And Jesus states, doesn't God care more for you than he does for the natural world? Yet he provides food for the birds, glad rags for the flowers, and he knows of our needs. In other words, the basics of life. So here here we have it then. This is a call by Jesus to his followers to trust in God's provision, to have trust and active faith. They're all clearly involved here in God's kingdom. Now, of course, in our age of social security and what some people call the nanny state, I wonder if we've moved away from this reliance upon God. Of course, God can work through these state provisions and good works. God works through the opportunities given to us to serve others. We've seen this recently with the rise of charities like Christians Against Poverty, Food Banks, Beeson, and through other charitable trusts. We have been given the opportunity to work for God to share in provision for people who lack provision. God will provide, but perhaps through the help of us as a community group like the church. But what Jesus is stating here is that the kingdom of God is not characterised as a place of anxiety and worry, but of faithful dependence upon God's provision. Remember that verse, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Put all your efforts into seeking what won't rust, what won't decay, what is worthless. Seek those things that are worthwhile. So there we have it. It's a challenging passage, isn't it? It's challenging words of Jesus. And we can only really respond by prayer, by submission to his will, if we want to be part of his kingdom. Just to remind you, in Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is heaven. So as Alan stated last week, the kingdom of God is for now. It's moving. It's revolutionary. It has opposite values to the world's kingdoms. And as we've seen this morning, within it there's no place for hypocrisy 
and worry, but it's a place for trust and faith. Trust and faith in God's provision. Trust and faith in the man Jesus who came, who was God's son, who came to die on the cross for each one of us. Trust and faith in that we will move into the eternity. That is what God offers us. God's kingdom is for here and now. It's for the past, the present, and the future. And we can have faith in God's provision for us, in the basics, in the things that are important, and not necessarily those things that are peripheral in our lives. Amen.